Abolition. Today. I am an abolitionist, I glory in the name, though now my slavery minions hiss and covered or with shame. It is a spell of light and power, the watchword of the free. They tore down They tore your dick 
desert in my bare feet With no food or water With nowhere to sleep Abolition, abolition, You just heard a Max Mix featuring What More Can They Do by Laura Isabor And I Am an Abolitionist by the Duchess Anti-Slavery Singers They are part of the Mid-Hudson Anti-Slavery History Project the lyrics to Song of the Abolitionists was written by Boston anti-slavery editor William Lloyd Garrison and appeared in The Liberator on December 31st, 1841. Laura Isbor is an Afro-Celtic Irish recording artist, musician, and producer. What More Can They Do is from the crossover album Let the Truth Be Told and is available online for purchase. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Max Parthas. I'm joined by my co-host, Yusuf Hassan. What's happening, brother Yusuf? How are you doing? Hey, peace, Max. Peace and blessings be upon you and upon our entire listening audience. Let's get Word, it, brother. Let's get it. <laughs> Last week, we talked about one part of the Eighth Amendment, the prohibition to mm-hmm. cruel and unusual punishment, which is ultimately manifested through the use of a death penalty by a slave state where at least one in 25 are innocent of all charges. This week, we cover the other part of the amendment, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed. We'll break down the connection between Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, modern legal slavery, and the wholesale violation of your constitutional rights. I mean, if the sixth is a myth, then the eighth is blood money. So, Yusha, what do you think about this week's intro, uh, the little maximix you had there? Hey, I loved it, man. I loved it. You you got me with the... uh the uh, Duchess anti-slavery singers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, well, you know, I, okay. Yeah, but it was right on time. It was right on time. And uh, Laura Isabor, you know, I've heard the name before. It was the first time I've ever heard a track of hers. And, yeah, what more can they do? What more can they do? Very really? fitting. I mean, oh. That's one of those songs. I'm an really abolitionist, and what more can they do? <laughs> I, apropos, they go together. Yeah, well, you know, we got a lot of messages to be putting out this week through the music and through the conversation, especially focusing on this particular amendment, the Eighth Amendment, and this particular part of it, which, in my opinion, and, and that would be an educated opinion, in my opinion, really drives what is called mass incarceration, you know, the excessive fines and fees. You've got 500,000 people in jail right now that are there for no other reason than they can't afford to pay bail. By very definition, that is the uh, violation of that right, right there, the Eighth Amendment. We're in a country where if you, as Brian Stevenson has said, if you are rich and guilty, you're better off than if you are innocent and poor because money is behind everything. All right, so how would you yeah, absolutely. Anything, anything you, you know, I've been trying to put my finger on it, and, then I, and it just hit me. I said, you know, 2020 is the 
is 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 the modern version of movie forty three. It's a movie that came out a couple of years ago where it was just all kinds of stuff going on in the movie that was all over the place. It kept playing all these little it was like a skit type movie and that's what it seems like we're getting through this year with everything. It's just something new and more unbelievable happening every day. You know, on top of COVID and the locust and the killer bees and uh, the police. Yeah, you got the police stations being burned. And then on top of that, we have to worry about uh, monkeys escaping an Indian lab carrying COVID-19 samples. (laughs) You know, and of course, business as usual when it comes to uh, the prison industrial complex, for-profit prisons, you know, slave labor in the prison. That's business as usual, but there's so many things that's happening outside the norm, but yet here we are still talking about the 13th Amendment and hitting to the core. What's the source behind a lot of the things that we talk about every week? Amen, man. Amen. Uh, we got a couple of anniversaries coming up here, as a matter of fact. Today and tomorrow are the 99th anniversary of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, when a white mob descended on an affluent black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood District, which was known as Black Wall Street, and it was decimated in a matter of days. Uh, roughly 1,200 homes burned. Estimated uh, 300 black people were killed. 300. We're talking about a lynch mob on steroids. Burned the whole damn town down, killed 300 people, and destroyed 35 blocks of affluent industry where they had their own airport, bus service, their own banking industry, their own grocery services, all of that gone in just a couple of days. And they even dropped bombs on them from the air using old uh, World War One airplanes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, for anyone that wants to do some – like here's some firsthand tales of it. We had uh, Dr. Olivia Hooker, who just died back in 2018. You know, she was, uh, I forget how old she was, but she was maybe like eight or 10 years old when this happened. So she was able to continue telling the story as to what happened that day. You know, and people say, you know, they make it seem like it was a, a race war where it's like a back and forth thing when this was really a massacre you know, where it was just one side fully attacking another side. And, and you know, it was, it was carrying out what we're seeing today. What we're seeing today is exactly what, what was happening then, where you have a group of people who were thriving on their own. You know, this, this is the whole thing behind Black Wall Street. These were businesses. I mean, the businesses were thriving so much that the whites of the community were complaining that they couldn't find work because we had all of these businesses thriving, black-owned banks, black-owned bus company, black everything, you know, had their their own society going, basically, hey, leave us alone. We just want to live. And there were people who were not comfortable with that, were not comfortable with black skin just living in a comfortable environment and just wanting to be left alone. 
And so we see how this plays out in today's times. And it's just something that goes on time and time again. Well, there's another anniversary coming up. That's June 2nd, 1863. That was the day that Harriet Tubman led the Union Army guerrillas into Maryland and freed more than 700 victims of legalized slavery. Just a couple days away, two days away, would be the anniversary since 1863. And this week, as you said, has been, my mind has been like all over the place, man. It's really hard to focus as we must focus on the bigger picture while all around you bodies are dropping. And you want to stop and say, you know, we need to focus on this person right here, right now. And then a day later, another one's gone. And then a day after that, another one's gone. And that's how it's been. At one point, I believe it was in Ohio, it was four deaths to handle police in 24 hours. Um, Right. Right now, all over the globe, people are uh, either in solidarity with or protesting here in the United States about the death of George Floyd. But as I just mentioned, George Floyd is not, he's not even the most recent, (laughs) you know? Right. Not even the most recent. Right. Every day, three people are killed at the hands of police. Every single day on average, 1,200 people a year. In the past decade, the police have killed so many people that you could fit them in one of these stadiums that they have for football and basketball and all these other sports arenas and fill it. That's how many people they've killed in the past decade. So it's it's really mind-blowing, man, and it's hard to maintain emotional stability because you just want to break down, you know? And and I know I have a couple times. I'm sure many others have as well. Yeah, same same here. And and one thing – we uh a lot of times we don't even find out at the time that it happens. You know, like at the case with uh Ahmad Aubrey. I mean it's something that happened and we didn't find out until weeks later when video, you know, right. surfaced. So right, a lot of right. so there are things that have happened this week that we haven't even heard about yet, but we're gonna probably hear about them in the coming weeks and months. Well, there is some good uh silver linings in this, you know. We have the opportunity and a platform to try to make a difference, to influence the minds of the generations coming up, and maybe help to uh, teach old dogs some new tricks, too. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, Right. It's a narrative that we're trying to provide, which we feel is a truthful narrative, but it doesn't go without opposition. Um, But we'll talk about that a little bit later. What I would like to start out first is by reading a couple of uh, letters that we received on behalf of our work. Well, one is a letter and the other one was a comment that I'm going to share. And uh, we asked uh, last week if you uh, really felt that we were doing a good job, if you had something to say about abolition today, please send us in letters and let us know so we can, A, read them on air. And when we put our website together, we can put them on the website as well so others can know what it is we're doing here. And we got a couple of beautiful letters, so I'd like to read them out loud. If that's okay, uh, you'll start uh, with the letter from Shannon, uh, Robert Smith, and then I'll share Pat Gailey's. Sure. This uh, this comes from Shannon Robert Smith out of Berea, Kentucky. She says, good morning. I'm a little behind in my listening, but I've heard all the episodes up to and including episode six. May I just say how deeply I appreciate your work on this series. 
Every week seems to get better and better, and I learn so much. I am particularly sorry. I particularly am impressed with the space you have created for imprisoned folks to call in and share their perspectives. This not only brings context and a platform to those among the most marginalized in our society, but also for the listener, a level of urgency, connection, and immediacy to the lived experience of imprisoned people. I also would like to call attention to the value bring in analyzing current events through a specifically abolitionist lens. It is truly deepening my understanding of both the interlocking nature of the systemic forces at play in these events and the historical context in which they sit. I am coming to the awareness that I, have, that I had never before heard big picture analysis connecting the dots on modern slavery in the way that abolition today has achieved. As I continue to listen, I hope I can begin to build a knowledge base that also allows me to view the world through an abolitionist lens. I know I have a lot to learn before I can get there, but your programming is providing me with a map to set me on the right course. In profound gratitude for all that you do, Shannon Robert Smith, Berea, Kentucky. That was beautiful. Thank you very much, That is Shannon. beautiful. Uh, Appreciate you. That is beautiful. And, and it's good to know that that's the effect that we're having at this point on some. And uh, we're trying our best because there is a big picture here. And the abolitionist perspective is the one that's missing. You heard every other perspective, you know. But then again, nobody ever told you that the 13th Amendment had an exception clause until recently. You know, both you right. and well, actually it was uh, Antonio from Angola Prison called me earlier. And he may call me later tonight, but we say, you know, when we was coming up, nobody told us about no 13th Amendment. We had to find out on our own and then connect the dots about what was going on. So I'm right. glad that we can be a vehicle to make those differences. There's another letter that came in from Pat Gailey, and I kind of snatched it off his page. Off the page. I hope you don't mind. Uh, it says that this show is, an excellent, is excellent and deserves attention. These guys put together an informative package that illuminates both the history and currency of slavery. There is a balance between music, document unpacking, and narratives from slaves moving towards freedom in the past and incarcerated individuals in the present as they are available. Highly recommended. If you want to know how slavery has not yet been abolished, highly recommended also if you don't think this is important because it is. Pat Gailey. Thank you so much, Pat. We really appreciate that. Indeed. Really, uh, so, Pat and know, Shannon really appreciate it from both of them. Yeah. And, and I would like to point out that both of them are from the Quaker community in Kentucky. Uh, as I said, we've been working with the Quaker community uh, for the past few years now, and uh, the support that they have been showing us is uh, overwhelming, and we are very appreciative of it. What? Wow. <laughs> That's truly amazing. Truly amazing. You know, and, Word. you know, while you're on the subject of, you know, speaking of Quakers, it just makes me think of the Amish, you know, just seeing video of the week of the Amish standing out holding signs in protest, you know, just to show how communities that we think aren't involved or don't care, that they're also showing their signs of care and their involvement as well, because everything we're talking about is a human condition. It doesn't, it's, it's not something dealing with a race, although we know blacks and, and Hispanics are disproportionately 
you know, the ones who suffer at the hands of the 13th Amendment the most, but it's something that affects all of humanity. Yes, it does. Well, if you don't mind, I got a little bit of an issue I want to deal with here on air. And we've kind of talked about this to some degree before, but it has since escalated and brought up some questions that I'd like to ask about a particular publication and particular authors. And the publication that I'm talking about is The Root. Uh, Now, you know, I appreciate some of the writing and stories that come out from The Root, especially from a black perspective, but I don't appreciate some of the purposeful uh, ways that they try to, to eliminate the abolitionist argument altogether. I mean, if not blatantly, then they do it by omission. And just recently, Michael Harriet, who is a member of the spoken word community, like myself, put out an article uh, talking about, I think it's titled Fed Up, uh, Fed Uprising. And in that, he talks about basically how we came to this point by documenting in excruciating detail the moment from the first slaves to get here all the way up till today's activity, moment by moment, even putting in things like the Casual Killing Act, which we talked about recently. But when he got to the 13th Amendment, the only thing he put there basically uh, was a link to the Civil War and saying that the day that the South conceded uh, their laws or something along those lines. There was nothing at all about the 13th Amendment's exception clause, nothing about convict leasing at all, and he skipped over that completely. And when, by paying so much detail to all the other things, you know, it kind of told me that he did that on purpose. And I, I have some evidence to back up the statement I just said, that he omitted the 13th Amendment and convict leasing from this list of things that has happened from us on purpose. And I don't know what his agenda is or what the writer's agendas are. But I do remember it started with the Colorado incident. When Colorado removed the exception clause from their state constitution, making them the first state to do so in 377 years, the statement mm-hmm. that came from their writer, Joe Gerardo, said, it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't erase the shame of slavery. It's the legislative equivalent of the director's cut of Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Like, yeah, I guess this is marginally better, but there are fundamental problems here that can't be solved with some minor tweaks. That was what they put out in the publication about removing the exception clause to slavery from the Colorado State Constitution. And then I looked up and found another article from Natalie. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce her name correctly. I apologize if I don't. The Grafton Reed uh, in November of 2018, where she was talking about the same thing, but in a much more positive aspect, saying Colorado still has a hell of a lot of things to fix, and it's no secret that labor as a punitive method is still a big-time factor capitalist machine. Hopefully, this will just make it that much harder. I'm not holding my breath, but maybe it's a step in the right direction to freedom. And that's what this, from the same publication said about the same incident. So you've got two different perspectives about what you're dealing with coming out from that particular area. Now, the Brother Harriet himself has written this much in regards to his article, Hillary Clinton, Jeff Sessions, and America's Secret Slave System. Now, this tells me that I know he knows. He said, contrary to mm-hmm. popular belief, slavery was never outlawed in the United States, period. 
This statement is not a debatable, half-twisted analysis or a cynical opinion. It is a fact. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution does not outlaw slavery. It only prohibits slavery in certain situations. It is entirely constitutional to turn drug dealers, gangbangers, and thugs into slaves. It is perfectly legal for corporations to use legions of slaves to increase their profit and pass them alongside the, along the shareholders. Even though it seems like the opposite of freedom, America is totally cool with it. And then he reads the 13th Amendment exception clause, where he prints it right there on uh, J- June the 12th, 2017, at 4.44 p.m. in his article. So I know he knows what's going on. But here we are in 2020 with a timeline of events that led up to 2020 fed uprising, and it's omitted conveniently with no mention whatsoever at all of convict leasing, which is a system that has been here since 1865. So my question is why? Why would you do that? Our argument, our narrative is that slavery has never ended. You agree with it, Michael Harriet. Your publication agrees with it. But then you purposely omit it from the information that you're providing as a person who is supposedly a thought leader, providing information. Why would you do that? I'm inviting you or any one of your writers to come on our program and discuss this issue because we want to know why would you do something like that when you know what's going on? Are you purposely trying to leave us out of the conversation as slavery abolitionists? Do you not want to touch on this subject in any way, shape, or form at this point because you're afraid it might cause some issues? Did your editor simply say, you know what, take that part out about slavery never ended? Is that what happened? We want to know. And if you don't think that slavery hasn't, uh, is still in continuing, uh, continuing today, we can have that debate. But we really want this question a- answered, and I've reached out to you personally as well as publicly. You said? And I also reached out to him on Twitter. You know, And surprisingly, I got a lot of likes and a lot of uh, retweets behind what I, what I stated you know, summarized into 200 characters of, you know, pretty much what you just said. It's just, I I couldn't figure it out because his article was so detailed, very detailed to where you can see that he did some research before he wrote that article because he had specifics. And I'm like, well, how can you even talk about the 14th Amendment without bringing up the 13th Amendment, because they're called the Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th. So they go together. So you can't talk about one without talking about the others. So that says, just I hold the same opinion as you do, Max, that it was done deliberately, because they all go together. Yeah, and and, and that's what I want to put my finger on, because if it was... uh, Editorial decision, I know me, I wouldn't be working there much longer if I'm writing and my editor told me, well, you can have all of this, but you got to take out the part about the 13th Amendment. I would have started, you know, impulsively, I probably would have quit on the spot because I know me, but at least if anything, I would be planning my escape from working there. Yeah, because you're censoring me, and I'm not with censorship in any way, shape, or form. 
he didn't even have to write anything new. Since you're only going to provide a link, is what, that's what he did in that period in 1865. If you're only providing a link to the Civil War, don't send it to the Civil War. Send them to your own article from 2017 where you told right. people about how slavery has never ended and how it's still being exploited. I don't know why you suddenly got a lesion now. And it's very right. confusing. You know, it's very confusing. Give, especially give them a link to 13. People have amnesia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was saying, give them a link to the documentary, 13, Slavery by anything. Another Name, you know, anything. The, like I just said, I, I read his own words out loud. He knows as much as us about it. He's right. written about it. All he had to do was link to his own writing. <laughs> but he kept it out of the conversation completely. I mean, omitted yeah. it like he had an eraser hand. Nope, we ain't going to talk about that right there. Uh-uh. We're going to skip that and go on to something else. I don't understand, and I'd like to understand, especially in this climate where we have other people doing the very same thing for no apparent reason, like Sean King, who wrote his dissertation on the 13th Amendment, who has told my mentees uh, and reached out to me and let us know how much this is important, the abolitionist movement, how right we are, how, you know, this is needed and we should have our uh, support but never ever supports us and never ever mentions it on any of his broadcasts and has the balls actually take the dot-com North Star from Frederick Douglass and use it for everything but slavery abolition. Right. You know, you got too many people like that. Uh, what's the other dude that's always on CNN with the bald head? Van Jones. Van, Van Jones was Jones. in 13th. He was in right. 13th, the freaking film. And what was the last we, time we've you even heard used, him talk about the clip. Yeah, we've used the clip on this show. Right. So, you know, I don't understand why these people who are alleged thought leaders out here driving justice arguments have sudden amnesia. They'll say one thing to some people and say another thing to other people. But we heard some of that last week in our discussion. Anyway, man, I could go on about this forever, you know. What I want to do is get back outside. So we're here to talk about the Eighth Amendment today, and particularly the aspect of the Eighth Amendment where you're supposed to be protected from excessive fines and fees and bail. So what we're going to do tonight is start by listening to one of the most reliable sources you could probably ever imagine to tell you exactly what's going down. And we're not talking about secondhand information. We're talking about the person who is literally in charge of how this rolls out. And at the time of this conversation, it was Eric Holder who went to Ferguson and read in Ferguson the Ferguson Report, which went over so many people's heads. So we took the time to pull out uh, the parts where he really goes into extreme detail about what it is we're dealing with and who's doing what, and we're going to listen to that together. I've listened to hours of different interviews and videos and read articles left and right, and I could not find any way to bring this together better than having a sitting attorney general tell you exactly what kind of crimes are being committed and to who. So, Yusuf, we're going to start off by listening to Eric Holtz. Here you go. Hey, let's do Abolition. it. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Now, as detailed in what I will call our searing report, and it is searing, also released by the Justice Department today, This investigation found a community that was deeply polarized. 
a community where deep distrust and hostility often characterized interactions between police and area residents. A community where local authorities consistently approached law enforcement not as a means for protecting public safety, but as a way to generate revenue. A community where both policing and municipal court practices were found to be disproportionately harmful to African American residents. A community where this harm frequently appears to stem, at least in part, from racial bias, both implicit and explicit. And a community where all of these conditions, unlawful practices, and constitutional violations have not only severely undermined the public trust, eroded police legitimacy, and made local residents less safe, but created an intensely charged atmosphere where people feel under assault and under siege by those who are charged to serve and to protect them. Now, of course, violence is never, is never justified. But seen in this context, amid a, a highly toxic environment, defined by mistrust and resentment, stoked by years of bad feelings, and spurred by illegal and misguided practices, it's not difficult to imagine how a single tragic incident set off the city of Ferguson like a powder keg. In a sense, members of the community may not have been responding only to a single isolated confrontation, but also to a pervasive, corrosive, and deeply unfortunate lack of trust attributable to numerous constitutional violations by their law enforcement officials, including First Amendment abuses, unreasonable searches and seizures, and excessive and dangerous use of force, exacerbated by severely disproportionate use of these tactics against African Americans and driven by overriding pressure from the city to use law enforcement not as a, a public service but as a tool for raising revenue. Now, according to, according to our investigation, this emphasis on, on revenue generation through policing has fostered unconstitutional practices or practices that contribute to constitutional violations at nearly every level of Ferguson's law enforcement system. Ferguson police officers issued nearly 50% more citations in the last year than they did in 2010, an increase that has not been driven or even accompanied by a rise in crime. As a result of this excessive reliance on ticketing, Today, the city generates a significant amount of revenue from the enforcement of code provisions. Along with taxes and other revenue streams in 2010, the city collected over $1.3 million in fines and fees collected by the court. For fiscal year 2015, Ferguson's city budget anticipates the revenues to exceed $3 million, more than double the total from just five years prior. Our review of the evidence and our conversations with police officers have shown that significant pressure is brought to bear on law enforcement personnel to deliver on these revenue increases. Once the system is primed for maximizing revenue, starting with fines and fine enforcement, the city relies on the police force to serve essentially as a, as a collection agency for the municipal court rather than as a law enforcement entity focused primarily on maintaining and promoting public safety. And a, and a wide variety of tactics, including disciplinary measures, are used to ensure certain levels of ticketing by individual officers, regardless of public safety needs. As a result, it has become commonplace in Ferguson for officers to charge multiple violations for the same conduct, 
three or four charges for a single stop is considered fairly routine. Some officers even compete to see who can issue the largest number of citations during a single stop. A total that in at least one instance rose as high as 14. And we have observed that even minor code violations can sometimes result in, in multiple arrests, jail time, and payments that exceed the cost of the original ticket many times over. Now, for example, in 2007, one woman received two parking tickets that together totaled $152. To date, she has paid $550 in fines and fees to the city of Ferguson. She has been arrested twice for having unpaid tickets, and she has spent six days in jail. Yet today, she still inexplicably owes Ferguson $541. And her story is only one of dozens of similar accounts that our investigation uncovered. Over time, it's clear that this, this culture of enforcement actions being disconnected from the, the public safety needs of the community, and often to the detriment of community residents, has given rise to a disturbing and unconstitutional pattern or practice. Our investigation showed that Ferguson police officers routinely violate the Fourth Amendment in stopping people without reasonable suspicion, arresting them without probable cause, and using unreasonable force against them. According to the police department's own records, their own records, its officers frequently infringe on residents' First Amendment rights. They interfere with the, with the right to record police activities, and they make enforcement decisions based on the way individuals express themselves. Now, many of these constitutional violations have become routine. Now, for instance, even though it's illegal for police officers to detain a person, even briefly, without a reasonable suspicion, it's become common practice for officers in Ferguson to, to stop pedestrians and to request identification for no reason at all. And even in cases where police encounters start off as constitutionally defensible, we found that they frequently and rapidly escalate and end up blatantly and unnecessarily crossing the line. During the summer of 2012, one Ferguson police officer detained a 32-year-old African-American man who had just finished playing basketball at a park. The officer approached the man while he was sitting in his car and he was resting. The car's windows appeared to be more heavily tinted than Ferguson's code allowed, so the officer did have legitimate grounds to question him. But with no apparent justification, the officer proceeded to accuse the man of being a pedophile. He prohibited the man from using his cell phone and ordered him to get out of his car for a pat-down search, even though he had no reason to suspect that the man was armed. And when the man objected, citing his constitutional rights, the police officer drew his service weapon, pointed it at the man's head, and arrested him on eight different counts. Now, this arrest caused the man to lose his job. Unfortunately, this event appears to have been anything but an isolated incident. Our investigation showed that members of Ferguson's police force frequently escalate rather than diffuse tensions with the residents that they encounter. And such actions are sometimes accompanied by, by First Amendment violations, including arresting people for, for talking back to officers, for recording their public activities, or engaging in other conduct that is constitutionally protected. 
Now, this behavior not only exacerbates tensions in its own right, it has the effect of stifling community confidence that is absolutely vital for effective policing. And this, in turn, deepens the widespread distrust provoked by the department's other unconstitutional exercises of police power, none of which is more harmful than its pattern of excessive force. Now, among the incidents of excessive force discovered by our comprehensive review, some resulted from stops or arrests that had no legal basis to begin with. Others were punitive or retaliatory in nature. The police department's routine use of tasers was found to be not really unconstitutional, but abusive and dangerous. Records showed a really disturbing history of using unnecessary force against people with mental illness. And our findings indicated that the overwhelming majority of force, almost 90%, is directed against African Americans. Now, this deeply alarming statistic points to one of the most pernicious aspects of the conduct that our investigation uncovered, that these policing practices disproportionately harm African American residents. In fact, our review of the evidence found no, no alternative explanation for the disproportionate impact on African American residents other than implicit and explicit racial bias. No other basis. Between October 2012 and October 2014, despite making up only 67% of the population, African Americans accounted for a little over 85% of all traffic stops by the Ferguson Police Department. African Americans were twice as likely as white residents to be searched during a routine traffic stop, even though they were 26% less likely to carry contraband. Between October 2012 and July 2014, 35 black individuals, 35 black individuals and zero white individuals received five or more citations at the same time. During the same period, African Americans accounted for fully 85% of the total charges brought by the Ferguson Police Department. African Americans made up over 90% of those charged with a, a highly discretionary offense described as, and I quote, manner of walking along roadway, unquote. Manner of walking along roadway. And use of dogs by Ferguson police appears to have been exclusively reserved for African Americans. In every case in which Ferguson police records recorded the race of a person bit by a police dog, that person was African American. The evidence of racial bias comes not only from statistics, but also from remarks made by police, city, and court officials. A, a thorough examination of the records, including a large volume of work emails, shows a number of public servants expressing racist comments or gender discrimination, demonstrating grotesque views and images of African Americans in which they were seen as the other, called transient by public officials and characterized as lacking personal responsibility. Now, I want to emphasize that all of these examples, statistics, and conclusions are drawn directly from the exhaustive findings report that the Department of Justice has now released. Abolition. 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 All right, you just heard it. That was Eric Holder, who was at the time the acting attorney general of the United States, physically went into Ferguson after a 
exhaustive, exhaustive investigation, and these were his findings. I couldn't have said it any clearer myself. He covered just about every base you can imagine. He hit it on the head. I mean, step-by-step breakdown. I don't think anyone is shocked or surprised by the information that he put out, but he's still looking at the audacity of it and how Ferguson has about 21,000 residents. So, I mean, that's, that's a neighborhood in New York City, you know. That's Queensbridge projects right there, that population. So we can imagine the numbers as we go around the country and look city by city by city by city, and we're going to hear the same story over and over and over and over again, the same story, the same story, the same racial disparity, the same constitutional violations over and over and over and over again. And this is the attorney general. He's the top cop, top cop in the country. And he's saying, this is what this police department is doing. And they know it's happening everywhere. Yeah, man. Uh, there was, uh, I took quite a bit of notes over the past couple of days. And then again, while listening today, and there was so much that stood out for me. It's like smacks in the face. I mean, it should wake you right up. He must have felt some kind of way as being not only the attorney general, but a black man, to be able to stand right. up and say, this is what's happening to you people right here in Ferguson, Missouri. And I am going to say it cut and dry and clear as I can, and nothing happened. I mean, there was some attempts to try to make Ferguson different, but I doubt if anything happened. From what I understand, there hasn't been much in the way of change. They went right nothing. back to business as usual. And as you pointed out, it's the only reason they got this information is because, like in Ohio and Cleveland, they had to investigate. The Attorney General's Office, the Department of Justice, had to investigate these violations that were occurring, particularly after people got fed up and started raising hell about it. And what they found in each case was the same thing. And that leads me to believe that it doesn't matter where you go. You can go to New York, you find the same thing even worse. Go to L.A., you find the same thing right. even worse. Right. In any city across America, you'll find that this is driving their revenue streams, using uh, human bodies as economic development resources. He said that the police department was being used to generate revenue and not for any real policing. He said that they turned the police department, not just a policeman, the police right. department into a collection agency for the right. city. And to drive it home, he pointed out how they went for $1.5 million, and then they sent a couple of emails to the police department saying, hey, can you make, do more tickets? And in uh, a year, they were up to $3 million because that's exactly what they did, just decided to put more tickets on. He was saying about in cases where they were competing to give the most tickets to random people that they were stopping. And those random right. people that were stopping were primarily black people every time. He was going to give somebody 14 tickets, and that's how many tickets he said, at least one case in their competitions, one guy got 14 tickets for a random stop. How much money are you talking about? And he didn't say it was just the police department. He said it was at every level of this city's infrastructure. The courts right. were involved, the police were involved, the city council was involved, the mayor was involved. Everybody was involved in this use of the Eighth Amendment's violation in order to generate millions. 
He even said that the police had quotas, that they were being pressured to arrest as many people as possible, a minimum of this many, in order for them to meet those quotas, and that there would be punishment, basically, if they didn't meet. Uh, you know, in Ferguson, they found out that there are 33,000 warrants in that city, 33,000. But there's only 21,000 mm-hmm. people. How the hell right. you got 33,000 warrants? You only got 21,000 people. And this shows the level of financial extortion and exploitation happening under the guise of a justice department in cities all across America. The example he used of the one woman, she had fines of $140. By the time it was all done, she was over $1,000 in debt, had already spent six days in jail, and still owed $500 to the state. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean... Yeah, mm-hmm. and look how look how a lot of it starts. Where he said that with many times the person was the method of the way they were walking down the street, you know, and that we translate right. that as walking while black, you know, because they said that you know blacks are two times more likely to be you know uh, searched and searched than whites, and then it turns out that. The blacks will be twenty times twenty percent less likely to actually be carrying contraband. So when you, when you look at the numbers, they're still doing it anyway because they know that there's no real pushback. Well, they're probably going to think differently. Hopefully now after what's going on this week, but for the most part, they know that there's there's not going to be any pushback from those who matter. You know, the mayor is not going to push back on them. The, the chief of police or the police commissioner is not going to push back on them. The city council is not going to push back on them. The courts are not going to push back on them. Nothing's going to come from the Department of Justice, you know. So it's not like people are being, you know, people in power are being arrested or fined for for doing these constitutional violations. So there's going to be no real change behind it. I mean, he even mentioned that in all the cases where Police dogs were sent out, and the the dog actually bit someone. A hundred percent of the Every cases case. were blacks. A hundred percent. Every case. Yep. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And in the cases yeah. where people were paying five or more tickets, that was also uh, what was it, what do you say? Thirty-five black people and no white people. <laughs> right. Zero white right. people. Thirty-five black, all all of them, every one of them. It's race based. Class-based extortion It's a rampant violation Of the Eighth Amendment Which protects you from these uh, Excessive bails, fines And fees And it's part of a huge industry That rakes in Many, many tens of Billions of dollars Collectively Using your bodies and your resources The people who have the least To fund everything that they're doing I'm talking about the fines and fees industrial complex, the traffic ticket industrial complex, the warrant mm-hmm. industrial complex, the bail industrial complex, the asset seizure industrial complex, the police auction industrial complex, the no-knock warrant industrial complex, the probation industrial complex, the court cost industrial complex, the child support industrial complex, the drug war, the police quotas. The uh, prison commissary exploitation, where you have to buy what they provide, and it's excessively high price. 
the prison banking industry, like JPEG, uh, where you right. have no other choice but to be exploited by them. Even the pay-to-stay jails, where you literally pay a fee to stay in a better jail. And in other jails right. where they charge you whether you want to be charged or not. If, you, if they charge you with a crime and put you in that jail, it's X amount of dollars every day for you being in there, whether you are guilty or not. This is all extortion, and it's a complete violation of the Eighth Amendment. You want to add anything Absolutely. else to that? Yeah, because, I mean, even when we talk about uh, GPS monitoring, I mean, the numbers are astronomical and the amount of money they're making in that industry for, you know, here a person, okay, you, you, you come up with ways of saying, okay, we're going to have alternatives to incarceration, but what it does is, increases the amount of fees. So now the person has to pay for the bracelet, pay for the monitoring. There's a monthly service fee. Then on top of all of that, he has his court fees. And, you know, there's a difference between fees and fines. You know, many people may not know the difference between a fee and a fine. But uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is that when – hold on, give me one second – lost track of myself in my notes when dealing with the difference between fees and fines. So when you when you have a, a fine, that's a criminal penalty imposed after a conviction. So say, for instance, if it's a ticket or if it's a, a crime where a person is going to be going to jail, there's a fine attached to that through, you know, statutes. To say a person, you know, spends 60 days in jails and, and pays, you know, $1,500, you know, so that's a court-imposed fine. But then they are also criminal fees, and the fees are what they really like. That's what they use to raise the revenue. And when we're talking about the fees, there are all kinds of fees. You know, there are court cost fees. There are, uh, they call it a court cost clearing trust fund fee. There's the fine and forfeiture fee. There's the Crime Stoppers program fee, the prosecutor fee, the crime compensation fee, uh, victims of victims compensation fee. There's law enforcement agency fees. There are all kinds of fees that they just make up because none of it is is uh, regulated. This is something that you know the courts make up themselves. Then they say, okay, well, we're just going to do all of this, and this is how we're going to drive up all these costs. So you have people paying fees that aren't even statutorily written. So it's not like you you know, the people that we vote into office, they go down to the state assembly in whatever state you're in. They go down there, and they when they come up with the criminal laws that attaches uh, fines to them, that's supposed to establish, okay, if a person is convicted of this, then this is what they pay. But then the courts turn around and say, well, we're going to do a money grab and we're going to impose fines, although it has nothing in the statute saying this. We're going to put these fines on people, and then when they can't pay them, we're going to send, we're going to send our police collection agency after them and kick their doors down and kill anybody that gets in our way. And we're going to take their homes, we're going to take their cars, we're going to take anything we get our hands on, we're going to garnish their wages, we're going to take their tax returns, we're going to do anything we can to collect these fees. 
which don't even come through the statutes. And, and what's the sword of Damocles? What is the or else at the end of that line? If you don't pay this bill, the or else. The or else is what it's always been. Prison. They will put you right. in prison. It's simple as that. And in prison, you will still generate a revenue source for them, whether you're working or not, uh, whatever. It don't matter. If they get possession of your body, you'll work X amount of dollars a year just for being in a bed. And that is the sort of Damocles that is at the end of all these sentences, that we will put and, you and, in jail or prison by force. And, and what's, what's, what's even funny about it, and I don't want to say funny, but what's even more peculiar about that is that the Supreme Court has addressed this in two cases that go back to the 70s. One is Williams versus Illinois, and the other one is Tate versus Short. That's from 71. And I just want to give you a, a, little, a little story on this one, the Williams versus Illinois. So he was sentenced for a petty theft. He was given a year imprisonment and a $500 fine plus $5 in court costs. But what happened, he was also, he was also put in a situation where once he finished his sentence, if the fine hadn't been paid, then he would also have to work off paying that fine an additional uh, however many days it would take him to pay it off at a rate of $5 a day. So after doing his one year, they were trying to make him do an additional 100 days to pay off the $500 fine. And, you know, the case eventually went all the way to the to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court where they overturned it because he was he was poor. He didn't have the money to pay for it. And the court said that under the Equal Protection Clause, a person can't be uh, sentenced to a period of in- imprisonment beyond the statutory maximum solely by the reason of their indigency. And that's a similar case as the Tate versus Short one. So when someone goes into the court and says, I can't afford to pay that, the court is supposed to have a hearing. You know, we want everyone that's listening to this to realize that, that you have to raise this argument when you're in court to say, I am indigent, I can't afford to pay that. And you are entitled to a hearing. They're supposed to give you a hearing to determine if you are really indigent and can't afford to pay. And it's not just merely the fact that, oh, you have a job, you can pay. That's not the determination of it, that there's a, a clear uh, process in determining who can pay and how much can they pay. And the courts have all kinds of other alternatives, but a lot of times they just bypass all of it because they're into getting that money and they want to use whatever force they can to get that money out of you. And that's why they do the things the way that they do them, Max. Well, I, I named a number of industries that all circle around a violation of the Eighth Amendment. And I did want to go over a couple of those briefly, but I also want to play a clip that I got from the Real News Network, which I've been on a couple of times with uh, Eddie Collins. And on this clip, they have an actual commander of a drug task force who comes on and spills the beans about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Again, there's some people who are firsthand have first-hand perspectives. This is the drug task commander. 
So before I go a little bit more into detail of the different areas, different industries, all revolving around Eighth Amendment violations, I want people to get a better understanding of what we're dealing with in addition to everything that Eric Holder said. So I'll, sorry, would you, Yusuf, I'll play that real quick? Absolutely. All right, here you go. This is Inside America's Cash Hungry Planes, Cash Hungry Plain Clothes Police Units from the Real News Network. And it's about Neil Franklin. As you know, on the show, we always try to dig deeper into every story we report. We attempt to unearth previously unreported facts and speak to people who are willing to reveal the truth about American policing. And today is no exception because we have an in-depth interview from a person who actually used to run one of these units. And what he told us is revelatory. His name is Neil Franklin, and he's a former state police commander who ran a plainclothes drug interdiction unit for years. In 2018, Franklin agreed to sit down with my reporting partner, Stephen Janis, to discuss what drives these ad hoc units and how things like money actually steer their investigations. And for the first time today, we are airing what he told us. To discuss the interview, I'm joined by Stephen to give us an overview of what he said and what it means. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, before we play the interview, Neil, who has been a guest before on our show, has had an interesting career. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, uh, along with being the head of a, a narcotics unit for the state police, he was also a commander in the Baltimore City Police Department, and he headed up their training division. So he's had a broad swath of experience in law enforcement. Stephen, now before we play the key clips, what was the topic of the interview and why were we speaking to him and what were you trying to learn? Well, at that point, we were investigating a Worcester County drug unit in Worcester County, which is on lower Maryland's Lower Eastern Shore, who had um, been harassing Kelvin Sewell, a police officer in Pocomoke City, who was trying to institute community policing. They kept coming into town unannounced and raiding people's homes and stirring up problems for Kelvin Sewell and the black community. So we had been looking into them and wanted to learn more about how these units operated. And we found out a lot of interesting things from him. Drug task forces, the way they operate, it's interesting. They're, they're interesting entities because they're not governed by one jurisdiction. They're not governed by a mayor's office. They're not governed by the governor. They're not governed by you know, a, a, a county executive. They're this willy-nilly group of folks who have come together <laughs> to do whatever they want to do and tie it to drug enforcement. She's a lot of money, she's a lot of cash. It's a lot of money, it's a lot of cars, motorcycles, homes, boats, you name it. And there's no direct accountability over top of that. And you know, a lot of times we were deciding upon what car to go after or what target to go after, what person to go after. We were making that decision upon the value of their assets. We do financial workups on people. And that's how we would target a lot of these folks. They, do, they, do they own their property? Yeah, we look at liens. Do they own their cars? We look at liens, motorcycles, boats, whatever else they had. And then we'd start to do the workup. And many times you'd hear some of the undercovers saying, um, that's going to be my next undercover car. Stephen, what is your reaction to Neil's assertion drug units would run financial workups to determine who to investigate? What does that tell us about the other ways we've discussed policing on past shows? Well, I think what it says to me is that um, 
the, the need and search for profit and the profit incentive completely warps policing to its core. And I think I even when Neil told me this, I was stunned by how naked it was, how, how they didn't even make any excuses or pretense as, in terms of why they're investigating. And also, I think, for once and for all, completely undermined any of the impetus for the war on drugs. The war on drugs is nothing but an industry based on exploiting communities and extracting wealth from communities that can least afford it. Well, you heard it right there. Uh, that was the Real News Network, and you heard Neil uh, Franklin, who was a former uh, commander when he's drug task force. And we're talking about the drug task force like the one they had in Baltimore, where all of them were arrested and have been charged mm-hmm. with racketeering and murder and drug selling. Uh, this is what was happening with the, the, the drug task force. And apparently this happens all over the country, and he broke it down for us just now. You see? Yeah, you know, I'm sitting here listening to him talking about you know, looking at someone's car and say, yeah, that's going to be my next undercover car right there. <laughs> you know, like these guys yeah. are window shopping. Yep, window shopping for what it is they want. And then they put the stuff that they don't want up for auction and they keep the money. The uh, auction, police auction is a huge industry generating millions and millions of dollars every year, particularly through asset seizure, as he just exclaimed, using the drug war as a cover. As a matter of fact, he said they're ungoverned. Yes. That these are literally right. just a bunch of people coming together to do whatever they want with no accountability under the cover of drug war. And he was the man there doing it with them, telling you this is what they were doing. He had even pointed out that they based their arrest not on what kind of crime somebody has committed, but on the value mm-hmm. of their assets. On the right. value of their assets, that's what's going to get you a no-knock warrant. The man got a freaking Mercedes-Benz in the front, so let's no-knock warrant this one. And, you know, it's not just it, the, the, the big-ticket items that they'll do it for. They will kill you over pennies and, and dimes, like literally uh, a warrant. Or just look at the case recently with G- George Floyd. What was George Floyd being accosted for? An alleged $20 counterfeit bill. $20 is what they will kill you for, or less. Right. And on on top of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Max. I I thought you were done. I should have been. (laughs) Go ahead, ahead, brother. I'll say it later. What I was going to say is when they seize a person's assets, even if the person is acquitted, they don't get their property back. You know, as right. I originally had posted an article, I have to dig it out again so we can get it up on the uh, on on the wall, on our page, I should say, where you had a gentleman who was arrested in, I don't have the article in front of me, so I forget the state. It was either Illinois, Ohio, somewhere of that nature, where it was a, it was a petty crime. I think he was given like a $1,000 fine. But then on top of that, they went after and they took his uh, his brand new, it was either a Land Rover or a Range Rover. It was worth $40,000. So they went to take that. And it took him going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to finally get his vehicle back. Six years it took him to get it back. But in most cases, people don't get their property back whether or not they're acquitted. They don't get their property back. So... Someone could be driving a nice car right now, and they can come up with some bogus warrant to come after you and seize your property 
and you're not going to get it back, and you can be totally innocent. So um, it just goes to show how out of control everything is. During our, our research and planning session, in the planning page, we have tons of material pulled together, like a series called Policing for Profit, uh, which is very insightful and breaks a lot of what we're talking about down, how the police are doing that. <laughs> Uh, we've got stories from all across America where this is the case. The police have been turned into nothing more than collection agencies, and crime and punishment has nothing to do with it. It's all about revenue generation in a racist, a racist climate, in a racist climate where the targets tend to be primarily black people, uh, and the uh, people who are participating in this crime against humanity, this exploitation, this violation of the Eighth Amendment are primarily white cops. And uh, cops, from what I understand at this point, are about 81% white. So it's already a white-dominated organization. But now right. it's also, it has been targeting people of color. I would disagree with the gentleman's statement when he said that this warps policing to its core. Uh, and I disagree by saying that policing was already warped. It started out as slave catchers. How are you going to right. get better or, or worse than that? How are you going to get worse than that? It already started out as slave catchers. And, and when black people and people of color were first allowed to become police uh, officers, like in Atlanta, they weren't even allowed to change clothes in the police department. They had to go change clothes around the corner somewhere. And they could not arrest or incarcerate or even talk to, as a policeman, white people in Atlanta. That's how they started incorporating black people into it to become fellow slave catchers alongside them for a paycheck. So, yeah, I, I would disagree on that point, you know. Um, we got a lot of stuff here still yet to cover, and uh, we've got about 30 minutes left uh, to get it done. So I, I did want to cover a couple more of those points uh, on the list that we had. One of them was traffic tickets. You know, the traffic ticket industrial complex is freaking huge. I remember here in South Carolina when I was doing research on South Carolina is Ferguson in my report, uh, America is Ferguson, that South Carolina had written 3 million tickets in the year of 2015. 3 million tickets averaging just under $200 a piece. Anybody with a calculator can do the math. That is a huge source of income. And if you don't pay the tickets... <laughs> Your license gets suspended, and if you still don't pay the ticket, then you end up in jail. It's always that bottom line. One way or another, they're going to get you whether they get your money or they get you a body, but they're going to get it. Right. So that's a huge industry, and I suspect in places like Los Angeles or California or New York that it makes South Carolina's little $3 million a year look like a joke. They probably write as many as $20 million a year in New York. Yeah, because I mean, when you factor in the uh, you know the the stop and frisk, which wasn't just limited to people walking down the street, but they would just pull you over in New York, and for any reason, they didn't need a reason. And of course, they always have some lame reason, like oh, he looked the he he looked away when he when he looked at me and we locked eyes, he turned his head away. And to them, that's that's something suspicious, or right. I think I read or I saw it somewhere where a person did something with his jaw, you know, that made them come after him. You know, it's always some little lame reason that they come after a person, 
And to substantiate it, you know, they, again, the competition for the most tickets, the ticket quotas, as we saw those officers from New York who were on CBS News or Good Morning America, one of those shows, where they actually told them how they have all these quotas to make. They got to write these tickets, got to write these tickets. And in New York and some other some other cities, they actually have these unconstitutional road stops where you can, if you're leaving Harlem, 125th Street, and say you're ready to jump on the uh, West Side Highway to go up to the George Washington Bridge, as soon as you turn on the little block right there, there's a whole bunch of cops ready to pull people over for no reason. They just point at you and you got to pull over. You don't pull over, now they're going to charge you with all kinds of other things. So you pull over and now they want to check your license and your registration and, you know, just go through a whole bunch of harassment because they need to write these tickets. And it's always in certain areas that they do it. You know, they're not going to do this, you know, on 96th and 3rd, 96th Street and 3rd Avenue, which is, you know, pretty much where, you know, the, the this one of the most affluent neighborhoods of New York City. They're going to do it in on Bryan Avenue in the South Bronx. You know, they're going to do it in the Soundview section. They're going to do it in East New York. They're going to do it in Brownsville. You know, they're going to do it in Flatbush, you know, where they know that people are poorer and they're not going to be able to make the payments because it creates more revenue. You write the ticket, the person can't pay the ticket. It ends up being a warrant for them at some point. Now they're going to have other fees associated with it. They're probably going to come home on a bracelet or they're going to have to bail out. This is more money that's going to get generated from one single ticket. One single ticket. We still got a, a good amount to cover. But before we do that, I want to play some music, but I want to do a little build-up first to the music itself, okay? Um, okay. First of all, you know, there's a lot of uh, people out right now that are burning and taking things out of these stores and breaking windows. And I can't say that it's my people out there doing that. You know what I mean? Like, at least not in mass. There's some of us involved. But when you look at the images from across the country, you'll see a different story. Uh, the anarchists and uh, people along those lines are taking advantage of the circumstances in order to use these protests as covers to do whatever damage they want to do in name of anarchy or helping the movement or whatever it may be. But that's their choices. That's not how we're rolling out there. We're trying to get justice out here. And, you know, the news constantly is only concerned about one thing, uh, what is being destroyed, what, what buildings are lost, what, you know, property, and as concerned about the lives. So considering that uh, it's, this started – particularly in Minneapolis, I have a track from a Minneapolis native and artist named P.O.S., and he's got a fire song called Fuck Your Stuff. We'll be right back. Abolition. Mm. Abolition. Then we did, we did. Get 
and they go without them. Fuck them in this town. Spit ice, skip jewelry. Multi cocktails on me like accessories. Um, they can teach you out of front. I am really raw. I ain't seen a mirror in a month, but I stay fly. Spinning man, spinning Flipping out with the breeze. I'm a ceiling fan. I'ma get him. I can show you how to pump something heavy in the back. Marshall stacks in the trunk. Got the windows down. I got the heat turned up on blast. Wagging on them on the West Bank. Handling the jack. Or catch me on a mission. Pissing in some convertibles. Trying to create some tension. Or in the book. Discussing Christopher Hitchens. Or how to make bombs. with shit you find in your kitchen. Listen. Hey. My whole crew's on some shit. Scuffing up your Nikes. Spitting on your whip. Kicking out the DJ. Rockets and we dip. We don't watch the replay. Hey. 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 My whole crew's on some shit. Scuffing up your Nikes. Spitting on your whip, kicking out so DJ, rocking then we dip. We don't watch the replay. Hey, replay. I never cared about your bucks. So if I run up with a mask on, probably got a gas can too. And I'm not here to fill her up. Nope, we came to riot, here to incite. We don't want any of your stuff. Keep sticking to the script, man. We never seen that shit. We knew the secret before they went ahead and wished he leaked it. Made it dumb, banging out the speakers. Hoping to smash capital quotes on the world leaders. Wait, they in the past, so we dancing on they ashes. Onward, upward, laughing at the masses. Thinking while they sit, I just go off on they ass. Wearing last year's trash, ladies still be back. And lashes, and trying to smash It's the passion, the goal The lack of a muzzle and a style That's fucking a rash Rash, 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 rash Ain't fucking around Fuck your stuff I mean, for real We genuinely believe that all of your shit is fake Understand my whole crew's on some shit Scuffing up your Nikes Spitting on your whip Kicking out your DJ Rocket and we dip We don't watch the replay Hey, I ain't kidding I got this brick in my hand My whole crew's on some shit Scuffing up your Nikes Spitting on your whip Kicking out your DJ Rocket and we dip We don't watch the replay Hey, alright tonight Let's make it terrible for my That was P.O.S. out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Shout out to P.O.S. Uh, he just survived a kidney transplant a couple years ago. Almost didn't make it. Glad he did. You see? Hey, man, it's a tough song, man. In fact, mm-hmm. right after the show, man, I'm getting in the truck, and I'm just going to drive around blasting that. You know, right? I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get as close as I can to the containment zone and just, you know, let 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 all these subwoofers just kick this out. And it's gonna be the theme music for tonight, man. Man, you know the story and the narrative has been consistent now for 400 years, and for some reason, it keeps getting just completely ignored. 
We keep telling you people are murdering us, killing us in the streets, and before cameras, we were saying it. And then after cameras, you can see it. Uh, you can see it with your own eyes every day. Simply go to Google or go to YouTube and type in killed by police, and you'll spend the next 10 years looking at freaking videos of people being murdered by police. That's how many right. it's happening to. We don't give a damn about your stuff. We're worried about our children, whether or not one in three black male children will end up in prison or dead because three are being killed every single day by law enforcement who are doing nothing but searching for people that they can use for extortion schemes to uh, violate our Eighth and Sixth Amendment rights in order to turn us into property that they can exploit. It's a horrible situation, but it's clear and cut. You can't help but see it, man. You know, just look at the bail industry complex, right? The bail industry is like $14 billion a year and or more. That's just what they say it is, $14 billion a year. And you're right. constantly put in a position where you cannot afford bail in your wildest dream. For instance, in Baltimore, when they had the Freddie Gray circumstances, the police who were charged with murdering him, had a bail set from $250,000 to $300,000. But the young brother, 18-year-old kid, who broke a police car window had a bail of $500,000. How the hell does the window get to be more of a crime requiring a higher bail than murder? (laughs) That's how they they roll with us. So this bail industry is exploiting that because, you know, using this 10% that they have, uh, where you, you, if you owe twenty thousand, you give them two thousand, which you never get back, and they pay your bail. It's a loan sharking system, and there's only two countries in the world where it even exists: us and the Philippines. Nobody else does that, but it exploits the people of fourteen billion dollars a year minimum, and keeps them locked behind bars where you can violate more of their rights. So that bail system has got to go. Uh, we talked about the asset seizure. We talked a little bit about police auctions. You know, it's not much a lot to say. They they exist, and there's a lot of them, and they make millions and millions of dollars selling the things they didn't keep. Um, then you also have that no-knock warrant industrial complex, which is the reason that Breonna Taylor is dead. You know, from what I understand, right. that particular team had three other warrants, no-knock warrants that night that they had already executed. So they showed up at her door at 1 o'clock in the morning out on this warrant industrial complex uh, scheme to get people's money and property and take it from them. And they were at the wrong freaking house. But they ended up shooting her eight times, and she's dead now, dead. And they would have never done it had they not been incentivized to search for profit uh, using these schemes. The child support industrial complex, that's huge, especially here in South Carolina, but all over the country, man. Yeah, all over. It doesn't make any sense at all. Like, how is it helpful to the family, to the child, to the mother, to the father, to put the father in jail for not being able to pay child support if they don't have a job? How is that helpful? I don't understand that part. And when you put them in jail, now you, you remove their chances and decrease their chances of future jobs, you probably made them lose whatever job they had. So it's a cycle now that leads to them being in prison for lack of payment in a child support scheme. And here in South Carolina, in the Columbia jail that they have over here, one in eight black men that are in those jails are in there for child support nonpayment. Uh, Walter Scott, who was shot in the back here in South Carolina, 
was shot in the back because of lack of child support payments. He's under a warrant for lack of child support payments. So this policeman, hunting this money down, shot him in the back and murdered him. And he would have never done that. that murderer is in prison right now. Yeah, he's one of the few. He's one of the few. Sager, right? He's one of the few that made it into the prison. Slager, yeah, Michael Slager. Slager. So that's a that's a huge uh, industry that generates again tens of millions, if not upwards in the billions of dollars, exploiting people uh, and using these tactics that shows clearly what it is the objective is. It's not to help anybody. <laughs> it's to put them in jail and get as much money as you can from them before they end up in there. And if by some chance on God's green earth they avoid getting into jail, you have still robbed them blind. So it's a win-win for the system in every case. Yeah. And in many states, you know, it's supposed to be when a person gets incarcerated, they can get a forbearance to where everything stops while they're incarcerated. There's no uh, arrears and all of that. But the courts haven't been granting them. So the toll still goes up. So if they go in and they owe, you know, 25,000 in arrears and they do a five-year bid, they're going to come out with about a $35,000 in arrears added. You know, it's going to be even more when they come home. So it doesn't even stop, although it's supposed to stop. It's written in law that it's supposed to stop. You know, you they have a whole unit in uh, Bergen County, New Jersey, at the Bergen County Jail. Uh, there's a whole unit for child support. You know, you have about uh, 70 guys that are there and I remember uh, I was dealing with some cases over there and I spoke to the one guy on the unit and he told me that almost everyone there was there for failure to pay not refusal to pay not ducking or dodging or any right. of that that they were unable to pay which under New Jersey law is illegal that none of them should have even been there and so, you know, eventually a class action was filed, and that's still headed, you know, through the through the courts at this moment, you know, because it's it's a practice that goes on in courts all across the country. Everywhere you go, you see guys, you know, getting locked up. They can't pay. And the judges, you know, it's like the guy comes to court and says, well, Your Honor, you know, no one to hire me. I've been looking. I've been the guys are coming with their proof. They're looking for work. They're doing all kinds of things. And the judge said, Okay, if you come back to me the next time and you don't have a job, I'm gonna lock you up. <laughs> and sure enough, when they come back to court, if they go back, because you know, if they tell you if you come back without a job, I'm gonna lock you up, well, what do you think a person's gonna do? The natural inclination is towards being free. So most are not going to go and freely turn themselves in. They're like, okay, they're just going to have to catch me when they catch me. But unbeknownst to them that, yes, having a warrant for failure to pay child support still subjects you to a no-knock warrant. You can still get a warrant for your arrest to where they can come. Yeah, it's it's a, a warrant for an unpaid fine is no different than a warrant for murder, that it's the same thing. You can you can you can still be subjected to the same thing as a person who has a warrant out for his arrest for a murder charge. Warrant is a warrant. The language on warrants are the same, no matter what the charge is. 
I remember Walter Scott's family saying that he had been incarcerated twice already for failure to be able to pay his child support. And he had lost many three jobs behind the harassment that was going on. So he was in a perpetual start-from-scratch circumstance. And on that final occasion, he simply refused to be arrested anymore and go back to jail for the same craziness, you know. And even though he he was a little overweight and had bad legs, he tried to run. And running from a policeman for any reason is an automatic death sentence in America. I have to explain to my mentees and to my grandchildren and my children that every time you're around a policeman, if they just look at you, your chances of dying have just increased. You have just gained chances of dying that did not exist a moment ago just because they look at you. That's how dangerous the situation is right now. And they're incentivized to go out here and hunt people in order to generate revenue. The attorney general has said, let's look at the court cost uh, industrial complex. In, In our discussion of the Sixth Amendment, we played a clip where they explained that the district attorney and the public defender's office was being financed by tickets. It was being financed by tickets. The district attorney was getting six times more money than the public defender's office of this ticket money. How insidious can you get with it? You were literally hunting people to get these tickets to generate this revenue, and then the defense, because they can't afford a lawyer because you're robbing the poor, uh, the defense has to depend on poor public defenders with huge workloads that cannot represent them properly and are being financed mm-hmm. by the very tickets that they picked you up on. <laughs> oh, man, it's sick. Right. And and, and while you're on that topic, Max, you know, there – you know, I provided a couple of articles that deal specifically with that. When you look at uh, one article is entitled The Steep Cost of Criminal Justice Fees and Fines. That's put out by the Brennan Center for Justice. Another one is called Criminal, Criminalizing Poverty Through Fines, Fees, and Costs. That's actually put out by the American Bar Association. And there's even one article entitled, Why I Refuse to Send People to Jail for Failure to Pay Fines. This is a surprising article by uh, a judge in the Texas, Texas Municipal Courts. You know, as he showed how he, he showed how his system works, where he doesn't have to send people to jail and people are actually paying their fines. You know, if you're giving them time or you really assess their situation. So those are a couple of things that, you know, I encourage our listeners to uh, review. I think it's one other article entitled New Report Challenges the Use of Fines and Fees as Revenue as a Revenue Source. Oh, they're also referencing the Brennan Center. So that's a repeat of the Brennan Center's article, you know, just to show how deep this rabbit hole goes. And it's still only scratching the surface. Because in their report, they looked at three they looked at three different states, so they're not looking at all fifty states, and they're only looking on the state level. They're not even looking at you know a lot of the stuff that goes on in the municipal courts and other quasi judicial courts. That's something else that we even have to look into, Max, where you have uh, you know the fines and fees that get associated to 
taxi drivers or to street vendors. You know, there's a whole industry behind that as well. You know, I remember when I was driving an ice cream truck in Brooklyn, you know, many years ago, and, you know, the guys, you know, I'm sitting in front of Forest Projects in Flatbush, and, you know, I see the cops go by me. There's some undercovers, you know, DTs, that we would call them in New York, and they pull around, and the guys come up to me, and I saw how the play was going. What they really wanted was some free ice cream, you know, but they came at me to say, oh, we see you have an expired sticker, you know, the health department sticker, and blah, 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 and he's like, oh, you know, you got to give me something to work with, you know, and long story short, to get out of paying the tickets, I wound up having to uh, give these guys some free ice cream, and you know, I gave them uh, $25 for their lunch. You know, but it just goes to show that even people that are out there trying to, you know, just get their hustle on legally, you know, as a street vendor, whether you're selling clothing or you're selling food, that you're even subjected to this, uh, to, to this uh, industrial complex of fines and fees. And it's just it's such a racially biased, violent, vindictive culture. Uh, that we're dealing with here. Uh, you know, like you, I have some personal stories as well. And my wife's sitting behind me. She's probably going to be nodding the head saying yes in a moment. But I remember one time we were coming from a camping trip, and they had one mm-hmm. of those random spot checks in Patterson, New Jersey, on the way back. Uh, so they pulled us over and stopped us. And all our paperwork was right. A sticker was good. Let me tell you, this dude did. He scraped off my current sticker off of my windshield, right, and then put on uh-huh. a sales sticker on my windshield, and then charged me with having a failed sticker. When I got upset wow. about how are you going to do something like that, like you just get it right in my face. And we didn't have cell phones right there back then. But this is how they were getting us. And this dude got upset with me, uh, like cops would do when you confront them. The man that I get out the car, started searching my car. He found a, two, uh, a World War II dagger that I had as a souvenir and a firecracker that was in one of our backpacks. And charged me mm-hmm. with possession of explosives and also with possession of a deadly weapon. And put me in wow. jail. After oh scraping my, my damn sticker off. That's all it started from. A spot check where they were robbing people on the freaking street and then framing them as they were there. And I was literally framed. I almost lost everything behind that. So, yeah, I'm sure we all I'm have these experiences. Yes. Yeah prison industrial complex and all the things that are wrapped around it, which consist of rampant constitutional violations. If your rights were being protected, your sixth and your eighth amendment rights were being protected and you had possession of them, we would not have these problems right now. But without the protection of your eighth or sixth amendment rights and without anybody to protect them, you are subject to slavery and exploitation, and extortion, and murder, and genocide, and all the things that go along with that, which is one of the reasons why I feel so some kind of way about all our soldiers and politicians. Like, you're here in the United States soil right now. The National Guard is walking alongside these freaking slave catchers, and you swore an oath to defend the rights of the Constitution, but you're the one violating it. So right. how do you deal with this? So, yeah, man, well, we're coming up on the end of this program. 
we need to do a summation of the uh, the show, uh, bring it all together if we can, and then we'll get into our final comments and such. And then we got a special treat for you tonight. You know, it's almost like Frederick Douglass's voice has been following us every week because whatever he's talking about that week is going on in the world today, right? Right, it's like it, it, right. It's right there, and it's no less than that today. So today's uh, Bridging the Gap is really very special, and we call it Bridging the Gap because, you know, it's the story of Frederick Douglass and what they were going through, and then we mimic it or we mirror it with music from today to show you how it's continuing. and. We'll show that to you in music and poetry. So I'm looking forward to that. So let's wrap it up with some summations uh, here. You said you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, there's one other article that's entitled Court Fines and Fees Generate Important Revenue, but for some people they're an insurmountable hurdle. And I believe that article really breaks it down in layman's terms as to how this uh, – this cycle goes and you know the list that you put out max that list all the different industrial complexes that's yeah. the perfect summation of how this blood money conspiracy works through the eighth amendment and the last thing i just want to mention i want to read a tweet that andrew yang sent out earlier today uh, he says, there are 18,000 police departments in the U.S. How is reform possible? One approach would be a new George Floyd Police Misconduct Division of the Department of Justice with a budget of $6 billion a year. Hire thousands of federal agents to investigate police misconduct. Have Val Demons running. The other issues are training, demilitarization, community-based policing, civilian input and oversight, body cams and transparency, local accountability and officer diversity. Training is likely the biggest driver. Officers are taught to shoot to kill within three seconds. An officer suggested to me national training to get away from the shoot to kill and replace with intermediate weapons and non-lethal approaches to slow down life or death decision-making. Just wanted to share that because just something that came across my timeline, and I thought it would be very important for the listeners to get. Thank you. Um, anything else? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, hold off because we're running short on time, and I know that you're gonna say most of the stuff that I was gonna say anyway. So, <laughs> you know, I defer to you. Well, thank you. Uh, the reason you say that is because we're both abolitionists. So the lens is there. We see it the same way, which is what we're appealing to everybody around us to do, to see it from a new perspective. Look at this as if this is still slavery, legal slavery, where people are being hunted, bought and sold, worked for free, tortured and abused, murdered along the way, all the things that you expect to see in chattel slavery. You can look around and you can find it right now for the inside these prison walls, or outside with the uh, exploitation and the oppression that is being unjustly applied to specific groups in the United States of America. The Eighth Amendment says that excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines and popes. And we're showing you, we have shown you today, how all of these different industrial complexes, which have grown up around the 1994 
prison crime bill, Clinton crime bill, Biden crime bill, uh, has now become global corporations making billions and billions of dollars. We commonly hear from those who are quoting wrong numbers that the U.S. government spends about $80 billion a year just on prison alone. Uh, we know that that is not how much it is. It's far more than that. But the companies that we just listed that I told you about earlier, fines and fees, traffic tickets, warrants, bail, asset seizure, police auctions, no not warrants, probation, court costs, child support, drug war, the police quotas, prison commissaries, prison banking, pay-to-state bills, all of those together are more than $80 billion in revenue, just those. So we've said it before, and we'll say it again, that the U.S. generates nearly a trillion dollars a year in revenue just from modern-day slavery here in this country. That's not counting what it does outside these borders because the companies that we're dealing with, particularly the private prisons, are global conglomerates. Uh, they are among the largest privately-owned corporations in the entire world where they employ more people on three continents than any other company on Earth. That's how big these prison companies have grown since 1994. Um, I'd also like to say that the people who have been slaughtered as of late, murdered in the streets, their lives would have never even been in jeopardy had we not had slave catchers on the street. I mean, without all these slave catchers, you don't have this interaction going on. And uh, if they weren't incentivized to go out there and earn revenue and generate revenue, there'd have been no no-knock warrant knocking on Breonna Taylor's door and murdering them. And they didn't, didn't even announce themselves. Just burst the door down and start shooting people. That would have never happened. This industrial complex has grown so huge that I believe at one time it was like a few thousand a year, and now it's like 80,000, no, not worth a year. And it's generating right. huge amounts of revenue. So without all of these different things going on, these lives would have never been in jeopardy. They would have never had any reason to be around cops let alone be murdered by one. So I think that although what we attempted to do here tonight was to take the Iliad and turn it into a haiku, <laughs> which is really what we're trying to do, right? We're really trying yeah. to put this down to a simple understanding. And the simple understanding is that this is a system of legalized slavery and human trafficking where everything you expect to see in slavery is, is, is here now. Yusuf? I couldn't have said it better myself, Max. That's why I just knew. I had no idea what you were going to say. None whatsoever. But I just knew. I mean, well, I know you. I appreciate you, brother. Um, yeah. I'd like for us to take a moment, if you can, and maybe give a shout-out to all the people that make our program possible. I, I was and definitely getting ready to do that. So that just shows we're in the same wavelength tonight. Yeah. And as always. <laughs> You know, we definitely would love to shout out our partners and sponsors, the IMWE Prison Advocacy Network, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, SEMA, uh, URJ, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, Punks for Progress, and also shout out to Jeanette Smith and Sharon Smith. Also of note, all the music and news clips that you hear from us on a week-to-week basis are available on youtube.com slash abolition today. We have our own URL, youtube.com slash abolition today. If you like the music, you know, like the page, like the videos, subscribe to our channel. Also, as a reminder, 
Jailhouse lawyer speak is calling on outside people to organize in your communities from August 21st, the anniversary of the murder of revolutionary prisoner George Jackson, and continue until September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica uprising. Please fill out this form and we will add your actions, events, and demonstrations to the list of events. No doubt. And also, Max, I'm sorry, that just triggered another uh, memory. Uh, I have two links that are also going to be up. One is uh, requesting people to sign the petition for Imam Jamil Alameen, formerly known as H. Rap Brown, you know, sign the petition for him to get transferred so he can get his proper medical treatment. He needs a a bone marrow biopsy, so it's very important that, you know, people sign the petition to show that there's community support for it. And I also wanted people to take a look at an article from The Intercept just talking of the situation with uh, Jalil Muntakim, formerly known as Anthony Bottom, where he had been granted parole, then the state appealed, and his parole was rescinded, and now he actually has coronavirus, and he's about 80 years old. You know, So that's two other things that I just wanted to add in. And the last one would be the Albert Woodfox uh, clip. You know, it's a six-minute clip you know, through NPR, if you want to listen to what it was like for Albert Woodfox serving more than 40 years in solitary confinement, talking about cruel and unusual punishment, 40, over 40 years in solitary confinement. So that's all I have for tonight, Max. Thanks, brother. Um, I'll make my final comments, and I'll read my final quote as well for the evening. I really appreciate those who support us and share the information and help us get more to tune in. I mean, we're trying to present a logical uh, understanding and answers uh, about this in a bigger picture than you're normally used to. Uh, and we do have, as I said, people who have other arguments, and, but they, they really haven't considered ours. You know, if criminal justice reformers maybe thought once in a while like an abolitionist, they might be seeing things differently and considering this crime against humanity. You know, if prison abolitionists started thinking like slavery abolitionists, maybe they would realize that by abolishing the plantation, you do not abolish slavery. You just abolish the plantation and some other new plantation type will appear. Uh, so, you know, we hope that we give you a new perspective on this and hopefully we kind of brought it all together about what's going on with this Eighth Amendment and how it affects our lives by being rampantly violated every single day. I want to read a quote from my mentor, Amiri Baraka. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Baba Baraka. He said, the black artist's role in America is to aid in the destruction of America as he knows it. His role is to report and reflect so precisely the nature of the society and of himself in that society that other men will be moved by the exactness of his rendering, and if they are black men, go strong through this movement, having seen their own strength and weakness, and if they are white men, tremble, curse, and go mad because they will be drenched with the filth of their evil. Mary Baraka. Uh, again, thank you. God bless. I'll see you next week. And so I'd like to go into our final segment for this evening where we have Ozzie Davis reads Frederick Douglass, Part 11, in our Bridging the Gap series. 
in which he realizes that despite Garrison's gospel of peaceful resistance, slavery cannot be ended without bloodshed, and everyone must be a soldier. And ironically, you know, my quite often closing quote is from Malcolm X, where he says, if you're not ready to die for it, put the word freedom out of your vocabulary. So it's right in line with what Frederick Douglass is saying here. And it's going to be followed by Lil Wayne's song, God Bless America, with a snippet from the film Harriet. So, Max, if the world hasn't burned down by next week, we'll see you on June 7th, you and all of our listeners. Until then, think about abolition today. Peace. God bless everyone. Abolition. Abolition. Just as I had come to differ with the Garrisonian school of abolition on such questions as the interpretation of the Constitution, dissolution of the Union, and political action, so too I differed on the important issue of the possibility of the peaceful abolition of slavery. For years, I had believed in the Garrisonian doctrine that through moral suasion and peaceful methods alone, the slave system could be abolished. But I gradually lost confidence in this doctrine, especially after I came to know and discuss this issue with a man whose character and conversation and whose objects and aims in life made a very deep impression upon my mind and heart. This man was Captain John Brown, whose name has now passed into history as one of the most marked characters and greatest heroes known to American fame. I first met this remarkable man at his home in Springfield, Massachusetts in the year 1847. In our conversation after dinner, he denounced slavery in language fierce and bitter, thought that slaveholders had forfeited their right to life, and that the slaves had the right to gain their liberty in any way they could and did not believe that moral suasion would ever liberate the slave. He thought the practice of carrying arms would be a good one for colored people to adopt, as it would give them a sense of their manhood. No people, he said, could have self-respect or be respected who would not fight for their freedom. When I suggested that we might convert the slaveholders, he became very much excited and said that could never be that they would never be induced to give up their slaves until they felt a big stick about their heads. From this night spent with John Brown, while I continued to write and speak about slavery, I became all the same, less hopeful of its peaceful abolition. My utterances became more and more tinged by the color of this man's strong impressions. Speaking at an anti-slavery convention in Boston in June 1849, I expressed the belief that slavery could only be destroyed by bloodshed and said that I should welcome the intelligence tomorrow, should it come, that the slaves had risen in the South and that the sable arms which had been engaged in beautifying and adorning the South were engaged in spreading death and devastation. Later, at an anti-slavery convention in Salem, Ohio, when I expressed the same view that slavery could only be destroyed by bloodshed, I was suddenly interrupted by a good old friend of mine, that courageous colored woman, Sojourner Truth, with the question, Frederick, is God dead? No, I answered, 
And because God is not dead, slavery can only end in bloodshed. My quaint old sister was of the Garrison School of Non-Resistance and was shocked at my sanguinary doctrine. But she too became an advocate of the sword when the war for the maintenance of the Union was finally declared. Ain't nobody get to sit this one out, you hear me? Uh, my mind's filled with minefields The ashes fall, the wine spills The world stops, drops and rolls It's judgment day off I drill yeah. I pour out my heart, have a drink They say it's drunk, never lie, they ain't never lying yeah. My country tis of thee Sweet land of kill them all and let them die God bless America, uh, this old God bless America, her tomorrow ain't promised today, the end of time is like an hour away, damn, military minded, lost and can't find it, stars on the flag are never shining, uh, I saw a butterfly in hell today. Will I die or go to jail today? Cause I live by the sword I'm dying by the sword Her police is looking for me I'ma hide by a broad Shoot the stars in my pocket Bitch sit on my rocket I'm wired off the socket But still shocking Everybody wanna tell me what I need You can play a role in my life But not the lead If there's food for thought Then I'm guilty of greed Mama said Take what you want, I took heed. Yeah. Ain't nobody get to sit this one out, you hear me? Take up arms against the injustice. 
then you got to pray another prayer. And you got to walk in it with conviction. He will provide, but you got to do your part. You got to find what it means for you to be a soldier. Beat back those that are trying to kill everything good and right in the world and call it making it great again. We can't afford to be just citizens in a time of That'll be surrender. That'll be giving up our future and our souls. Ain't nobody get to sit this one out. You hear me? You hear me? You hear me? Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. 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 Today.